This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't subscribed already, make sure you do and you'll receive new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week we're delving into the hidden history of spies, intelligence personnel and secret agents. In the past, their lives, work and achievements were shrouded in secrecy. But today, their service, contributions and memory are honoured through blue plaques at their former homes in London. Joining me to discuss these key figures of British intelligence is English Heritage's senior historian for Blue Plaques, Howard Spencer. Thanks for having me on. Hello, thanks for coming back. We're talking about six people today, three men and three women, four of whom were born outside the UK, whose exploits were pretty crucial to British intelligence generally, and for some of them to World War II as well. First up is the first chief of Secret Intelligence Service, Sir Mansfield Cumming, who I gather is one of the fathers of modern British espionage and was also known as C. So what is C's or Sir Mansfield Cumming's key achievement then, Howard? Well, he really was there right at the start. So he was the founding head of what became the Secret Intelligence Service or SIS and later known as MI6, i.e. the foreign branch of the Secret Service. And he is born well before the 20th century, before these other secret agents and spies get involved in our podcast, really. Queen Victoria is on the throne. When is Sir Mansfield coming born? He's born in 1859 in India, where his father was in the Royal Engineers. He was born Mansfield George Smith. He later changed his name to Cumming on his second marriage, and this was a part of the conditions of an inheritance. And his early career, how does he get into this area? Well, his early career was in the Navy, and he joined up aged 13, which was not then particularly unusual, and he saw service on various ships and in various theatres, including scraps with Malay pirates, and he fought in, in, in Egypt. He saw action there. But he had a reason for leaving that career, I understand. Well, that's right. It's a, it's, it's a rather unusual one. It was chronic seasickness, and this was in 1885, which was the year he turned 26. Now, his biographers since have treated this with some kind of scepticism, partly because there's quite a lot of mystery about his life, really. And it's possible that because he was already possibly had been identified to do certain sensitive roles, that this was not actually quite the case. But what he immediately went on to do was work as an estate uh, manager on a, an estate in Ireland. But later on, in the 1890s, he was given charge of organising naval defences of Southampton Water. So this was obviously a pretty important military role again. So this is a bit of a smokescreen, this um, idea of seasickness, because he has spent a long time at sea before he's sort of diagnosed, shall we say. Well, it's it's possible that it was something like that. It is also possible that people develop these kind of sensitivities, I suppose. So 1890 is around this time that he's working on these southern sea defences, is that right? That's right, yes. Okay, and then obviously we've got quite a long period between then and the outbreak of World War I in 1914. What does he do in World War I? 
Well, he gets a sort of tap on the shoulder, effectively, to head up something called the Secret Service Bureau in 1909. Um, he gets a mysterious letter promising something good, and that's what it turns out to be. So, as I say, he's, he's there right at the start of Secret Service operations in this country. The service is split two years later in 1911 into home and foreign sections, and he was given charge of the foreign section. So, as I said, what became later MI6... So were there agents in World War One that he was looking after? Or oh, that's, that's right, yes. I mean, by 1918, there were 400 agents, remarkably, in a network he was running in Germany known as La Dame Blanche. But in fact, his espionage in Germany had dated back to well before the start of World War One, because, as we know, there was a fair old, you know, military industrial sort of build up to that. And the focus of his espionage was always on Germany and, and more specifically on German war preparations in shipyards industry and so on, just to know what they were doing. But he never went out there himself. He, he pretty much was on a boat in his early career and then back in England after yes, that. Yes, he was, he was operating agents from London. I understand he uh, gets his knighthood eventually, becomes Sir Mansfield coming. When's that? Well, that was in 1919, just just after the war ended. I mean, the network was seriously scaled back, but he he carried on as head of the SIS. In fact, he died in 1923, shortly before he was due to retire. Presumably his successes were quite varied and many to be honoured with a, a knighthood. Well, yes. I mean, I think he, I think he, you know, he'd been right in at the start of, of our secret services, and it was obviously considered an important part of the wartime operation. Now, we we were going to talk about this idea of the sea thing. Obviously, yeah. that relates to coming. But um, tell us a bit more about why he became called Sea. Well, he signed his all his documents uh, in green ink as Sea, and all MI6 heads that followed him did something similar with their own initials. And this is what inspired M in James Bond, the, the head of the service in, in James Bond. So there's a, there's a sort of an important link there. He was also, in terms of sort of acting as an inspiration for Ian Fleming, he was very interested in the gadget and disguise side of spying. And he was himself a sort of a rather ra- a raffish sort of figure, fond of boating and, and fast cars. Unfortunately, he had an accident in his Rolls Royce, which he used to drive very dangerously. And his son was driving at the time of the accident. Unfortunately, he, he died in the accident and, and Sir Mansfield himself lost a leg. And he used to shoot around the corridors in, in Whitehall on a scooter thereafter. And occasionally, apparently, he used to um, jab compass dividers into his artificial leg to sort of emphasise a point, which clearly uh, people who were with him, if they didn't know it was an artificial leg, found that rather disconcerting. And that's a great training for um, being a spy, isn't it? To, to not flinch. Um, <laughs> so his blue plaque then, whereabouts is that in London? It's on uh, number two Whitehall Court, which is a, a Thames side building dating from the late 1880s. It's the building that also contains the National Liberal Club and the part that uh, Cummings lived and worked in, which was on the, on the seventh floor. He, he occupied two adjacent flats, is now a hotel. It's a very distinctive building which resembles a sort of Renaissance French chateau and you get a very good view of it over the river from uh, sort of the Waterloo area. So broadly speaking, Sir Mansfield Cumming, also known as C, very much one of the fathers of British espionage and a, a key sort of foundational figure in the that's history. Right. That's exactly what I'd call him, key foundational figure in the, in the service. So Sir Mansfield Cumming dies in 1923. Let's move forward two decades to the Second World War and a man called FFE Yo Thomas. I presume FFE was not a code name. <laughs> no, that, that was his real name. It stands for Forrest Frederick Edward. He was uh, effectively a lower ranking person than Sir Mansfield coming and also of a, a later generation. But I mean, he actually was 
out in the field risking his necks. So in, in a way, you know, it, it, certainly equally uh, worthy of notice. And he was mm. born in Marylebone, but he spent his early life in France, which obviously equipped him in, in, in language skills. And as, as we'll see as this conversation goes on, that's a kind of fairly key point, really. Yeah. What was FFE Yo Thomas best known for then? Well, he was the most decorated secret agent of World War II, I believe. George Cross, Military Cross, Croix de Guerre, Commander of the Legion of Honour. He undertook three missions into wartime France, which was pretty extraordinary given that uh, the expectations was, well, I mean, the expectations of many intelligence agents was that effectively they got caught before that or needed to be sprung. So, uh, yeah, pretty extraordinary series of achievements. What did he do before he got into intelligence then? He enlisted in the in the RAF originally before he, he was brought into the Special Operations Executive, or SOE. How do you sort of get drawn into that sort of thing? I mean, obviously you talked about his language skills there, so maybe that, that played a role? I think that uh, certainly would have played a role. He was, he, I say he was born in Marylebone but grew up in Dieppe, went to a, a lycée in Paris, I believe. I mean, I think... He was just noticed and he had various sort of key skills that would have made him a good spy and would have commended him to those who were looking out for people like him. I mean, he showed that he had a pretty strong urge to fight for a start when he joined up while underage in, in the First World War, much to the chagrin of his father. He then fought as a mercenary after the First World War for the Poles against the Russians. And in, in that conflict, he was caught and imprisoned and escaped by strangling a guard so I think you've got then another sort of key skill for an espionage agent which is which is a sort of necessary streak of, of ruthlessness I mean it's either you or them and he was in that kind of situation I think he was also very uh, quick thinking and resourceful and of course those are, those are sort of fundamental skills for this kind of work. So the First World War ends obviously the armistice is signed but he is back in action old FFE Yo Thomas. World War Two rears its ugly head what is his role in World War Two? Well, yes, interestingly, in World War II, he kind of reigned on his own parade a bit because by putting his age on for World War One, he was actually initially deemed too old, but basically went back and kept trying, and they, they eventually, I say, let him, let him into the, the RAF originally. And then he was brought into the Special Operations Executive, which was this unit created, well, really directly by Churchill's order, which was in charge of putting resistance operations in France uniting them with each other because obviously in, you know in, in occupied France you had a situation where you had people who wished to resist the Nazis but they didn't they didn't know about what else was going on so it was basically in creating networks and also generally in, in sabotage operation that was the, the other main occupation of a special operations executive agent. Did he have to drop into France every so often via parachute? Well, he, absolutely I mean he, he had three missions as I said earlier first in 1943 and he was a pretty successful agent. He was eventually betrayed in March of 1944, uh, arrested and tortured, but he revealed nothing of value. And he ended up in Buchenwald, where he attempted to escape, but uh, didn't manage to get out. By the latter stages of, of the war, the Geneva Conventions had pretty much gone out the window and the Germans were just shooting people like secret agents, as we'll find with some of the, the later stories. Mm. Um, but he managed to swap identities with a Frenchman and was eventually liberated by the Americans who found him. But he was in a, in a pretty bad state at that point. Sort of said, they said he was more dead than alive. Goodness me. Pretty successful then, in the fact that he survived. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, he, his main job was, was effectively in creating these networks among the French resistance. That was what he did, and he, he was very successful in that, in his three missions. Did he take on any other roles after the war? 
well, interestingly, he went back to initially to what he was doing before, which was working for a Paris fashion house. Again, a slightly unlikely thing, perhaps, for somebody of his his uh, skills and nature to be doing. But that's what he was doing. He worked for the fashion house of Molyneux, and he went back to that for a bit. And then later on, he worked in France as an agent for the Federation of British Industries, again, using his language skills. And he, li- he liked to think that he was keeping up the sort of tradition of, of Anglo-French entente by, by doing that work. What about his blue plaque then? Um, where is FFE Yo Thomas's blue plaque in London? It's in Queen Square in Bloomsbury, in a, in a blo- on a block of flats called Queen Court, where he lived at, at number five. This was home to his partner and later wife, Barbara Dean, from 1941. And so it was, it was sort of his home as well. And it remained their home until 1946 when they moved first to Ireland and then on to France. I should say that the plaque is on the Guildford Street elevation of the building. So if you're, if you're in Queen Square, you have to walk through to the Guildford Street side. And that's where the plaque is. And the plaque mentions, as do a number of these, these plaques we're talking about today, it mentions his secret agent code name, which was the White Rabbit. And that was also the um, title of a biography of, of his. Does this house as well, uh, this property, relate to his World War II exploits mostly? Well, because uh, there was a bit of a snag in trying to put up blue plaques to spies in that by the very definition of their job, they're not at home a lot. Mm. Uh, so that, that, is a, that is a slight difficulty. But this was his base. This was his base in London while he was going on these missions. So yes, this is where he came back to. And this is where he came back to at the, at the end of the war, having managed to survive Buchenwald. We move on to another secret agent now, Violette Sabo, who was also involved with the French resistance. We're obviously talking about a woman now as well. What was Violette's, or is it Violet or Violette? <laughs> Violette, Violette. I mean, she, she okay. was half French, yes. Okay, so what was her main achievement? Just picking up on your earlier point about women in this in this role. Yeah, there were, there were in all, I believe, 39 women SOE, Special Operations Executive Agents, in occupied France. So quite a lot. And of course, this is a bit of a moment, really, because this is one of the first times that you've got women effectively in frontline combat roles. I mean, it, it's not a combat role in the sense of uniform and trenches and all the things that have gone before, but it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's very much that they're putting their lives on the line. In order to do that, I understand that she was honoured eventually. Can you summarise her key achievements? Well, like Eo Thomas, she worked as an SOE officer in occupied France to coordinate resistance and create networks between different pockets of French resistance. And she was eventually awarded the George Cross, though unfortunately it was uh, posthumously. Was this for her work with the French Resistance, is that right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that, 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 was, that was what she, she got it for. Her early career, how did she get into this sort of thing? It's not the sort of thing that we expect young ladies to be doing, <laughs> but I suppose there's a war on, so... Yes, well, she was born in Paris. As I said earlier, her mother was French, and the family then moved to London. She left the London County Council School in Stockwell Road, Brixton, at the age of 14, to work as a shop assistant on the perfume counter of the Bon Marche shop in Brixton. So if you thought, you know, Thomas's uh, job for a fashion house was unlikely, then that's possibly even more so. We've talked about her early life, and her maiden name, I understand, was Bushel. Uh, she acquires the surname Sabo. How does that happen and when? Well, she married a man called Etienne Zabo in 1940. He was an officer in de Gaulle's Free French Forces, and he was of Hungarian ancestry, hence the name. They had a daughter together called Tanya. Unfortunately, they didn't enjoy a long married life because he was killed in North Africa in 1942. Why did she become a spy then? 
Well, essentially, I think she joined up to avenge his death following year in 1943. Right. But she turned out, among other things, to be an absolute dead shot when they trained her. So she had some certain aptitudes that she wouldn't ordinarily have known about. And obviously she can, you know, she's born French, so that helps. She's half French. She speaks, she speaks French, I think, with, with a slight uh, English accent, but it's, it's, it's good enough. How many missions did she carry out then? And was it all in France? Yes, that's right. It, um, there were two missions. First of all, in April 1944, and she came back from that one, and then she returned in June of that year. What happened on these missions, exactly? Well, on the second mission, unfortunately, she was captured. She was caught in a German roadblock following an, an exchange of fire somewhere near Limoges in, in the southwestern area of France. And then what happened? Well, sadly, eventually, she was she was one of these people who, who as I mentioned earlier, who was killed. I mean, she was shot in, in, in Ravensbrück camp at the point when all the conventions of war had, had been abandoned. And when was she honoured with the George Cross eventually? Well, she was given that uh, posthumously in, in 1946. It was, it was presented to her daughter, Tanya, who was then four. It's quite a, quite a poignant event. So the British government has recognised her. Did the French also recognise her achievements? Yes, they did. And she got the Croix de Guerre in, in 1944, at the point when she'd unfortunately been captured. And the English Heritage Blue Plaque, where does that sit? It's on 18 Burnley Road in Stockwell, which is where her family moved in 1935. And she stayed there until 1942, so even after her marriage, because obviously her husband was fighting. And at that point, she moved with her daughter to an address in, in Notting Hill. I mean, in terms of other commemoration, there's a film based on her life called Carve Her Name with Pride. Uh, it's a 1958 film starring Virginia McKenna. OK, let's move on to another heroine of World War II's secret spy society. This is Noor Inayat Khan, who was also a special operations executive agent. What was Noor's background and what can you tell us about her early life? She was born in Moscow. Her father was Indian. Uh, he was a, a musician and a Sufi Muslim teacher. Her mother was American of mixed English, Irish and Scottish heritage. And the family moved to London for a time around the sort of First World War years and then on to Paris. And it's there that she learned to speak fluent French. How did she come to join the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in England? I understand this was one of her parts of her career. That's right. Well, the family fled the Nazi invasion of France, so they came back to London where they'd lived before. And that's at the point, just at the, the, the outbreak of, of World War Two, that she signed up for the WRAF. At which point, it might be said that she's not actually a British citizen, so she's under no obligation to do any of this. Before that, actually, she was making great strides as a children's author. She was already a, a published author, despite only being, I think, at that point in her 20s. So, how what's her role in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force? Well, she trains as a wireless operator, and it's, it's from that position that she is brought into the Special Operations Executive. Again, her, in her fluent French from her time at a French lycée will have commended her for that. And she then becomes the first female radio operator sent to France, and that's in June 1943. Her codename is Madeleine, and this is, is also on the blue plaque. She's also known amid her network as Nora Baker, Baker being her mother's name. And the cover name she was given was Jean-Marie Grenier, a children's nurse. Wow. So lots of different names. Lots of names, absolutely. Yeah. And she was the first female radio operator to be dropped into France, is that right? Well, that, that's right. I mean, the firsts here are quite common because, as, as I say, women were not, before this, put into these kind of roles. This, this mm. is what's so new about it. 
And this is why, incidentally, she we can say fairly confidently that she's Britain's first Muslim w- female war hero. I mean, normally I'm very wary about stating firsts like that, but I, I, I don't think there's going to be anybody who's, who's, who's discovered who's earlier than she is. OK, so tell us a bit more about her operations in France. What happened? Well, she was part of a network called Prosper, and unfortunately it had already been extensively penetrated by the time she arrived, to the point where the agent who met her was later, who initially sort of hooked up with her, found her, was supposed to be a double agent, was later discovered to be a double agent. So eventually, effectively, the Germans were on her tail right away. Ah. I mean, she kept moving and she kept transmitting, and she managed to evade the Gestapo for three and a half months, but she was arrested in mid-October 1943 when she was just planning to leave and come back to the, new, the UK because she knew she was in danger. Did she have to resort to changing her identity, clothes, that sort of thing? Yes, all, all of those things, but they, they had a fairly good description of her appearance, so I think they caught up with her by those means, and I think she was also betrayed by one of those early contacts that she'd had the sister of of the uh, first contact she'd had dobbed her in basically she doesn't survive the war how does she die well she was imprisoned at Fortsheim and later at Karlsruhe and eventually killed in Dachau camp in September 1944 I'm afraid there's evidence that she may have been singled out for particularly brutal treatment and I think we can safely assume that that would have been on racial grounds given the, the Germans' master race obsessions at, at that point, the Nazis' master race obsessions. Mm. She also, like the other agents, got the Croix de Guerre and the George Cross, but unfortunately well, posthumously. Yes, of course. Regarding her time in London then, where is her blue plaque? Where did she live in London at the time? Well, again, I mean, as I mentioned before, the job description does mean that she's not in, in London an awful lot while she's actually working for the SOE, but the address that we chose to put the plaque on was the one that she left to go on that final uh, mission which was number four Taverton Street in Bloomsbury Mm. Um, this was her mother's flat and it was also the address that she carved on the bottom of a feeding bowl while she was in Fort Syme prison in order to let fellow prisoners know she was there okay let's move on to another of our female secret agents this is Christine Granville she was the first female agent of the then Secret Intelligence Service, now known as MI6, I understand. What can you tell us about her early life? Well, she was born Christina Scarbeck, daughter of a fairly dissipated Polish aristocrat. Her mother was Jewish from a banking family, a Polish-Jewish banking family. She was very extrovert. She lived a sort of, I guess, a fairly comfortable early existence on the family estates, uh, learned horse riding, learned how to handle guns, which, of course, came in handy later. Mm. Uh, She loved skiing, hated housework and office work and things like that. And she moved to London with her second husband uh, at the outbreak of uh, World War Two, having put up with having the family estates occupied by the the Germans in the First World War. She didn't do it again. Didn't she have some sort of um, great idea about skiing across the Alps and um, providing intelligence and for the British and this sort of thing? Well, yes, yes, she, she, did, she did use her skiing skills, notably to get back into Poland um, quite early in the war. She was sent on a mission which was essentially a sort of a mission to reassure the Poles that they hadn't been forgotten about. So she distributed literature to that effect. She skied in via Hungary and Czechoslovakia over the border. That's pretty daring stuff, isn't it? Was she quite a sort of gutsy woman? I mean, she sounds like she came from a very comfortable background, but, you know, really had some gumption. 
Oh yeah, she was she she was pretty extraordinary. I mean, some of the stories. I mean, she was. I say say that she she you, you mentioned earlier that she was originally brought into the SIS or MI6, but she ended up later in the war. Her sort of better known work was for the also for the Special Operations Executive, mm. and she worked for them in a number of different theatres of war. There was the mission back to Poland uh, over the mountains uh, that I mentioned. On that one, she was arrested by the Gestapo. She managed to convince them that, that she had TB by biting her lip and pretending that she coughed up blood, and they let them go. Uh, so incredibly resourceful. Yeah. Um, she then had a spell in Cairo in other parts of the Middle East, doing general espionage work. Later worked in France, where she notably talked some Polish conscripts, over 60 of them in the German army, to defect, thus handing a, a, an Alpine uh, pass to the Allies. And she also crossed into Italy at that point, across the Alps into Italy, and made contact with partisans there. Probably her major achievement was in springing a man called Francis Comet, who was a leading SOE figure in France, one of the leaders of the operation. And she got him out of prison towards the end of the war in, in, in 1944 by a mixture of threats and bribery, and also by pretending to be General Montgomery's niece. So, yeah, I, I think she's a pretty extraordinary character. Wow, very resourceful. I mean, like a chameleon in, in some respects. You know, she's got the diplomacy, tactfulness, making things up on the spot, and sort of a bit of a brutal streak as well. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I think this, these are all the kind of things that you need to be a successful spy or espionage agent. So what happens after the war? Well, she couldn't go back to Poland because she worked for British intelligence, and Poland was then communist-run and she was an aristocrat, so that would have been another powerful disincentive. She was granted British citizenship in 1946, but she, from the SOE, she got a one-off payment of £100, which, while that went a lot further then than it does now, was not exactly generous. Mm. So she wasn't brilliantly treated, really. No. I understand that um, she had a few lovers during her times in the intelligence service, and that her life ended at the hands of an ex-lover. Unfortunately so. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a terrible story. So she worked in various menial jobs after the war, never really settled to anything, found the peace a lot harder than the war, as is quite a common occurrence for some people who are caught up in these things. But in 1950, she decided to become a stewardess on cruise ships. And on one of those cruise ships, she met a man called Dennis Muldoney, and he stood up for her in a row that she had with some colleagues. And they were lovers for a, for a short time, but she got tired of him and told him to get lost mm. and unfortunately he pursued her he became obsessed with her. i mean he was he was sort of a stalker basically and he stabbed her to death in the hall of the hotel in earl's court where she was living at, at that time and her, her blue plaque well the thing is i mean that is actually where the plaque is on one lexham gardens in earl's court and that is unfortunately where that happened but the point is that that's the only address associated with her in london so it was either that or nothing really mm. uh, i mean blue plaques are intended to be celebratory and therefore putting a plaque where somebody was murdered is something that's something we, we we would normally try to avoid doing but as i say it was it was that or, or not commemorate her and and that didn't seem right at all and it, it must be said that she did also live at the hotel for three years it wasn't like an ordinary hotel stay it was it was more of a in the character of a boarding house and that was her london base let's move on to a male agent this is a Spaniard called Juan Puyol Garcia, or Garcia, I think it is. He is 
the third man in our set of six spy figures. He's honoured with a blue plaque, uh, like all the others as well. Spanish-born and worked for British counter-espionage. He's been described as the greatest double agent of World War II. How does he get this credit? Well, this is probably, among all the stories I've told, this is probably the most extraordinary story of all, really, in many ways. Puchol's major achievement was in getting the Germans to believe that the D-Day invasion was going to happen somewhere other than where it did. So that's pretty major stuff. He also got early intelligence to Bletchley Park about a change in the, the German codes, which was very important too. But I just want to say something about the term double agent, because that's not what we call him on the plaque. He's just called a secret agent. And, and of course, the reason for that is that the term double agent is distinctly double-edged. Most people who are double agents are double agents because they've been turned, as in they've been caught and told that it's either you work with us or, you know, you face the consequences. But he was, if you like, an elective double agent. He chose what he did. And it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary story. He came from near Barcelona, where he managed a chicken farm. He was on both sides during the Spanish Civil War. He was notionally, in the, in the, in, first of all, in the Republican Army, and then he, he defected to the Nationalists, but he never actually fired a shot on either side. And the thing that seems to have come out of the Spanish Civil War for him was a hatred of political extremism in general. And that translated later as a particular hatred of Nazism. So at the outbreak of World War II, he offered his services to the British Embassy in Madrid, where he was by then working as a hotel manager. And they, perhaps not surprisingly, rebuffed him because he didn't have any particular, anything obvious really to offer them at that point. So what he did was he posed as a keen Nazi and approached the Germans. And he convinced the Germans that he was running an extensive spy network in Britain and all this while he was in Lisbon and had never visited Britain. Um, <laughs> he basically used a blue guide to tell him all about Britain and he cultivated a very flowery writing style so that his reports kind of were very florid, but they didn't actually say anything because he had nothing to say. <laughs> right, OK. So he's done a good job of convincing the Germans to bring him on as an agent. How does he get then to work for the British? Yes, because I mean, all this that I've talked about so far, is he, he's doing effectively as a freelance and the British intelligence got in touch with him and sought him out, not least because I, I think they were concerned that he, what he was doing was clearly they had no control over it and it might, it might sort of impinge or affect their own operations. So it's, it basically it was decided that he would be supervised and he would be brought in in-house, as it were. So they, in, in April 1942, he's brought to London via Plymouth and he's installed in a safe house with his wife, Araceli. He's given the code name Garbo, not because he wants to be alone, but because he was such a good actor. Mm -hmm. And he continues to write to the Germans. Uh, initially, I mean, he, he writes to them via, using, using letters. And then from the following year, he uses a transmitter from his safe house in, in Hendon. And amid all the kind of nonsense and, and misinformation that he, that he transmits them, obviously they've got to keep the Germans' confidence in him up. So there is actually some genuine information there. But what they did was they made sure that that genuine information always arrived too late to be of any use. Right. What was his exact role in Operation Fortitude? Because obviously Fortitude is the operation that relates to D-Day. Yeah, well, this was what I alluded to earlier, which was basically to convince the Germans that the main invasion was going to come via the Pas de Calais, the shortest available channel crossing. And of course, that fiction was rather improbably maintained right up to the end. And it was done via various means, including having fake installations at Dover and things like that. But um, rubber tanks, Gar sort of Garbo, Gar mm. that's, that's right. Yes. And Garbo did play an important part in that, in that he managed to convince them that 
even when the real D-Day fleet was gathering, he managed to convince the Germans that that was a diversionary tactic. That was his <laughs> key role in this. It's fantastic. How many fake aliases did he have and did he have this network of imaginary people? That's right, yes. He was supposed to be running a, a, a network of, I think it was over 100 fictitious agents and he had to do various things like occasionally if, if it got a bit too hot, as in there was a sort of situation where somebody should have noticed something that they hadn't and reported it, then he would just have them killed off and, and obituaries were even produced to sort of show that certain agents had died and, and, and I think in one case the Germans granted a, a war widow's pension to a fictitious agent's fictitious wife. I mean, it really was an extraordinary bit of work. Wow. So for his amazing, complicated work, how is he honoured in the UK? He got an MBE from the UK, which is um, fine, but not the highest honour that he might have got. And of course, he, he wasn't actually presented with it. He couldn't be because he needed to maintain the whole fiction of Garbo to protect him from reprisals later. So in fact, it was only it was only in the 1980s that he actually got to come to Buckingham Palace and get the recognition that he deserved. Ironically, I mean, he got the Iron Cross in Germany, which is rather um, rather a, a larger honour in, in many ways. When was and that he, given to him then? Well, that was given to him during the war for the sterling work he was doing, they believed. <laughs> right. So he yeah. really had them wrapped around his little finger, didn't he? He did. He, did. he, he, was, he was very effective. He was, he was well-named. Okay. So codename Garbo, Juan Puyol Garcia, where is his blue plaque? For any Spanish tourists. <laughs> <laughs> his blue plaque is at number 35 Crespigny Road in, in Hendon, which, as I say, was the, was the safe house he was taken to. It's where he lived with his wife and with his transmitter. Latterly, I should say, he lived in Venezuela. He had a, a new life there, and I'm afraid his relationship didn't survive the war either. I mean, his wife got pretty tired of living in Hendon at one point, threatened to blow the whistle on the whole thing, which was uh, forestalled. But yes, yeah, so you can go and see his blue plaque up in Hendon. Right, so that's North London, isn't it? That's right. Howard, we've uh, described the lives and times of some pretty brave men and women there, all honoured with London blue plaques. They all share intelligence as a career and also contributed either directly or indirectly to the success of the intelligence services during World War II. What do their lives tell us about what it took to be a secret agent in the first half of the 20th century? Well, I think extreme courage, a willingness to die for what you believe in, because a number of them did, resourcefulness, sang-froid, and good language skills, really. It's worth emphasising that so many of these folks were born outside the UK, and of course that, there's no accident in that, because that tended to translate to having good language skills, and in particular good French. And obviously some of them were part of the wider British Empire. Uh, we think of Nor Inayat Khan there. Well, indeed, yes, that's, that's right. Yes, the, 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 there's, a, there's a link there. And I think, I think the other thing that sort of binds them all together a bit is that you don't make a good spy if you're a homebody. And, and really none of them were, except for, I mean, arguably Pujol, I guess. I mean, he was, he was up in Hendon doing his stuff with his wife and they were kind of more or less getting on or not. Yes. But for most of them, I mean, they were, they were out in the field, which, as I've said, does present certain difficulties to memorialising them in London. But happily, they do all have associations with buildings that we can put plaques on. Yes. So all generally sort of moving targets in a way, itinerant people with non-set lifestyles. Christine Granville was the kind of the classic example of that, somebody who couldn't really settle to anything afterwards and who liked that kind of lifestyle, didn't like living in ordinary houses and preferred living in hotels. Or You could always do a book on the personality traits of spies, couldn't you? Yes, uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Some of these plaques have only recently been put up, is that right? 
Yes, that's right. The plaques to Noor and to Granville and Pujol have all gone up in, in the last couple of months since lockdown was lifted and we were able to actually start putting plaques up again. I mean, I'd like to be able to say this was part of some grand thematic plan, but actually I'm afraid it, it wasn't. It was really just a, a sort of an accident of circumstance in that we're always working towards a, a large number of plaques. We never quite know when the necessary permissions are going to come in or, and, and so on. And it just so happened that these three all came to fruition at the same time. But it's, it's quite a happy coincidence. The one at Hendon for Juan Puyol Garcia, I understand that the owners were quite surprised that you know, it was going to go up there. Presumably that property now will end up being listed or something, will it? Or- uh, listing's a different process, so not not necessarily. I mean, it, yes, I mean, I think most people are, are often surprised and hopefully agreeably surprised when they discover that their house has got an interesting personal association that they perhaps didn't know about before. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's sometimes been my, my sort of pleasant duty to tell people, to knock on the door and say, did you know that X lived here? And I've I've had people who've had to sort of cling onto the door frame for, for support because <laughs> they've been so surprised by what I've told them. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's usually, and people are very positive about it and they were very positive about it. So that was uh, all good. Did you get to go to the property and, and meet them? I didn't actually. Somebody else did the detailed research on that one. But, uh, and as I say, we, because of the lockdown restrictions, we've not been able to have traditional unveiling ceremonies that we'd normally do. But we took the view that it was better to uh, put these things up and get back to us normal a life as we possibly could. We know that property is quite expensive in London, especially North London, which is quite popular. Hendon's a fairly, fairly nice area. Is there any likelihood, um, I know you're not an estate agent, but um, that having a blue plaque on this property is going to increase its value? Or Well, they increase the interest level. I mean, I don't think... I think you know. I've said to people before, if I think I think you know, the more reliable way of increasing uh, the value of your property is probably to up the spec of your bathroom and kitchen. Right. <laughs> I don't think I don't think a, a blue plaque is necessarily going to be that crucial. Well, for people like you and me and our listeners, this certainly has historical value and and visitational value as well. I would say. What are your personal feelings when you're researching all these amazing stories? You must sort of your eyebrows must be permanently sort of up when you're doing this sort of work. Yes, and I, and I think with the stories that we've been talking about today, I mean, it doesn't half give you a bit of perspective on the kind of tribulations that we're going through at the moment. I mean, uh, you just look back to the, the um, situation that those secret agents were in and you, you think, well, actually, you know, this is really not anything really comparable to the sort of danger that they faced on a daily basis. So it's, it's very, uh, gives, you a, gives you a perspective, I think, apart from anything else. I mean, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's awe-inspiring, really, a lot of what they did. Yes, I suppose the great contrast is that in most recent months, most of us have been asked to stay at home, be homebodies, as you sort of described earlier. And all these people who were from various parts of Europe and the world were doing things for the greater cause, which was to defeat the Nazis in World War Two and to go out in the field into the jaws of danger. Well, exactly. Yes, I mean, there is there is an enormous contrast to be drawn there. Absolutely right. Yes, I mean... Uh what they did was, you know, incomparable and it, and, it, and it really they were sort of launching themselves into the unknown as well. Absolutely. I think we owe a great debt to them as well. Yes, we certainly do. Yes, they deserve to be remembered and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, in a small way with blue plaques we can, we can help to do that. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information about London's blue plaque scheme, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we dig into the story of archaeologist Mortimer Wheeler and his excavation of Stanic Iron Age Fort.
He brought a kind of rigour and military precision to recording and setting out the trenches. They would have huge influence on the way that archaeology was done in this country. Thanks for listening. See you next time.